Good morning, familia. You have no idea what a pleasure it is for me to be here uh, today. Um, Will is really, really uh, someone really close to my heart. Um, uh, when when we first opened this, I, I, you know, I knew right from the beginning that Will was going to be the perfect person for this place. Um, so when I see you, I see my little brother's church, uh, which is really, it's really uh, personal to me. Right now, I was asked to preach um, to finish this series in the, in the letter to First John, but because there's so many things that you don't know about Will, um, I, I think I'm just going to change the message and let's talk about him, right? Because I know that he's used my name here quite a few times uh, in, a, in a not very positive way. So whatever he said about me is probably true. Um, why don't we open our Bibles in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read from verses 13 to 21. We're going to put them up on the screen. Um, I'm going to ask you to keep, if you have a Bible, keep them open. Keep it open as I, as I try to explain what's happening here. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. And the word of the Lord says like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that, the, that leads to death, and I'm, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18. We know that any, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, the evil, and the evil one cannot harm them. Verse 19. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Allow me to pray. Uh, Jesus, we come before you. Uh, acknowledging that, that it is your word uh, that I'm about to preach. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart may be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so let me, let me start with a question. Um, do you agree with me that we live in a, in a season in, in our life in which everything seems uncertain? Um. You know, from a, a political stand, uh, we could say that life seems uncertain from the things, things in the world are happening. It seems like everything is uncertain. Um, even if you look at your personal life, at times it feels that everything in life is uncertain. Um, I, I think that that's just life. You know, that life sucks sometimes. Uh, and I think that is true because when you look at your health, for example, if you're past... 35, you know that everything is falling apart. Amen. I'm 42, and I started to fall apart like at 21. Uh, gravity is, you know, getting a hold of me. Everything is coming down. Uh, so life change. Your health change. You might be healthy today, but tomorrow you're not. Uh, when you think of relationships, rela relationships change. You know, you, you might be married or you might have really close people to you, but that changes as well. It, cha it changes with the stages of life and, and it changes with the seasons of life. Everything changes. So I've been married uh, for uh, almost 17 years now. I've known my wife for 23 years. So I, I met her when I was like five. Um, and, um, and, and we have a really close relationship, but I know that that relationship will change when one of us depart from this creation, right? And I have two beautiful daughters that I love so much, and, but I know that that's going to change. Once they become adults, you know, I'm, I'm no longer going to be 
cool dad, right? I'm just going to be the guy that pays the, for college and stuff. Um, uh, and I know that I'm going to have him close in my heart, but I know that the relationship will change. It'll change when somebody else shows up in a picture, right? Some punk with <laughs> wrong ideas, right? Uh, our relationship is going to change. Uh, our careers change. You know, there's a season in life in which every single one of us, whether we like it or not, um, we're not as important anymore, right? Especially in our culture, especially in the United States, uh, when the older you get, it seems like if there's nothing for you to contribute, which anti, that's anti-biblical, by the way. Um, everything changed. There's nothing, actually nothing, uh, certain in life. Everything seems to be uncertain. That's just life. It doesn't seem like a good, you know, Thanksgiving message. Um, but that's, that's just what it is. Except that in Christianity, we find something different. That's the beauty of Christianity. Christianity offers something different. Christianity does not deny the reality that everything in life is uncertain. But what Christianity does is offers something to live in the midst of uncertainty. I think that's important. I think it's important for us to know that God's intention for his creation is not to keep him from trouble or from problems, but God's intention for his creation is to give him something to, to kind of walk through trouble. I think that's, that's, that's important for us to have, right? Because there's this tendency to think that Christianity is about God saving you from something, and many, many, many times in a Christian walk, God does not save you from problems or from struggles or from things like that. What he does is he gives you something to walk through them. And that for me is Christian certainties. I call them gospel certainties, uh, certainties Christian certainties, or we could actually call it convictions, which is for me is the same thing. It's these things that the Lord gives us. Uh, if you're a believer, it's these things that the Lord gives you when you believe in Him, when you surrender your life to Him. He gives you these things that are the very things that sustain you in the midst of trouble. The beauty of Jesus, the beauty of God, the beauty of the gospel is not necessarily that He, that he saves you from struggles, but that He saves you through them. Only Christianity does that. Not only God promises sometimes to save you from things, but he saves you through things. And for me, it's the Christian certainties. And this beautiful text we just read this morning, which happened to be John's last words ever. Actually, some scholars believe that these things that we just read are the last things written to Christians ever. So it seems like if John saved this last message uh, for us to have forever, there was nothing, according to some scholars, nothing that was added to this after this. So I want you to keep that in mind. Because you know that if you're dying, every word counts. Like you don't waste time if you know that you have, your time is limited. You, you want every word to count. I think that was John's motive here. That was John's heart here. So let me start with, with, with trying to define what convictions or certainties are. Um, a conviction or a certainty is not something that is bound to feelings, you know? Uh, feelings come and go. So today I love you, but tomorrow I hate you, right? Today I embrace you, but tomorrow I won't. If, if my convictions are bound to my emotions, then it's no longer a conviction. It's just emotions, a conviction is something that is not bound to circumstances. Because if it's bound to circumstances, when things are going fine, then I'm fine. But if things are going wrong, then I'm wrong. But that's not a conviction. That's not certainty. So I, I guess a good definition of what a conviction is or a certainty is, is something that is unshakable, something that is unmovable, something that is unchangeable, regardless of how you feel. Regardless of what you go through and regardless of what you experience, it's something that is given to you by the power of the Spirit that does not change ever. That's the only way that you could explain 
Uh, why there's so many examples in the Bible in Christianity, actually. People like Paul, for example, that is in prison, about to be killed, and he writes a whole letter about joy. That's the only way that you could explain that. That is the only way that you could explain someone that someone or something, someone that has lost everything and yet finds contentment. It's convictions. It's having a clear understanding of what are the things that we have that nobody could take away from you. You know, my, um, I converted at age uh, 21, I believe, my first year of college. Um, my mom had a kind of a re-encounter we got at age 40. So she grew up in a Christian family. She kind of walked away. And at age 40, she has this re-encounter with the Lord. Um, she says that she actually got converted at, at that time. What is interesting, though, is that my mom used to be a teacher prior to Christianity. Um, an amazing woman. She just struggled in a lot of things, but she, she was a teacher. Uh, at that time, my, my brother, sister, and I, with her, we were living in Oak Park, in the nice side of Oak Park, right? Um, I was going to school. Everything was going perfect. The moment my mom converts to Christianity, everything started to go downhill. <laughs> so for... You know, if you heard about the prosperity gospel, that was not prosperity gospel for my mom. You know, so out of a sudden, the Lord calls my mom out of this stable job and sends her to become a missionary in some agency that worked with people on the street and drug addicts and things like that. And, and at that time, I'm not a Christian yet, but I remember going to see her. Uh, she only had permission to see her family uh, because they were always working on Saturdays. And at that time... Um, so my mom is a teacher, but in Colombia she was a, a, a psychologist, right? Um, I don't have to ex- time to explain how, how, anyway. She comes here to the United States. She gets her degree to become a teacher. She's teaching, and now she's working in a thrift store where she got converted. Everything inside of me says, this doesn't make any sense. We're supposed to get better, not worse. Um... So I go to visit my mom, and I remember I took, you know, good, healthy food, uh, gyros. And we're sitting over there, and I see my mom getting up and fixing things around and stuff like that. And all I'm thinking is, this sucks. This, this is not the way this is supposed to be, you know. This is not what the gospel does. But I remember, like, if it was today that I could see joy in her face. And I did not have an answer why. Well, after I converted, like a year after that, I realized that it was these things called convictions. When you have the conviction of who you are for Jesus and in Jesus, when you have the convictions of what the Lord has given you, when you have the convictions of what is yet to come, When you have these convictions, regardless of what you feel or what you experience or what you go through or the circumstances, nothing takes joy and contentment and peace from you. That's a conviction. That's certainty. And the text which is read today, it's all about that. And actually, I'm going to give you, um, I read five, but I think I'm only going to give you three. All right, out of, that I find in the text. Um, and I get the word conviction from the word know, to know. If you notice in the text when we read it, the word to know appears at least in our translation seven times. It appears in verse 13, two more times in verse 15, one more time in verse 18, one more time in verse 19, and two more times in verse 20. The word to know in the, in the original, in the Greek, is oida. Which you got to understand this, that it's much more than just to know something. It's, it's much more than information. It is almost this word that means um, to possess information and to be possessed by that information. Does it make sense? There's a difference between knowing certain things and being possessed by the things we know. So actually in the original, the word to know, oida, it's almost like understand, remember, experience, and be transformed by it. What I need you to keep in mind is this. 
Information does not change anybody. To know things does not change you at all. Information is not enough. Knowing the Bible is not enough. Possessing information about the Bible is not enough. Is that the Bible possesses you. Does that make sense? Listen, the perfect, I use this example all the time. Listen, we know, how many of you guys like hamburgers? Raise your hand. It's all right. If you're Christian, it's all right. If you like hamburgers, all right. How many of you guys like McDonald's? All right. You know, have you seen the documentaries about McDonald's? You're about to die? Yeah. Now, look it. We know all the information about McDonald's. You know, if you actually buy one, read all the stuff that it has in there. And basically what you're going to find out is that if you eat too much of it, you're going to die. Basically, that's what it says. Now, the question is this. Why is it that that information doesn't stop you from eating hamburgers? Because information is not enough. The only thing I know after reading all that stuff is I, at least I know how I'm going to die. Right? But it doesn't stop me from enjoying these beautiful, amazing, tasty hamburgers with a full of grease fries. And if I could put cheese on it, it's even better. Because information doesn't change people. Therefore, the word know here is not just to know. It's to know these things in such a way that they control you. In the midst of an uncertain world, to know these things in a better way, different way, is, is what keeps you going through life, through problems, through struggles, through pain. That's what that word means. And John is going to give us at least, there's five, and I'm going to give you three. Three things that we must know, things that we must understand, remember, things that we must experience, things that we must transform us in the way we live our life. The first one has to do with eternal life. To have the conviction about eternal life. And you, said, you see that in verse uh, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's Jesus, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's such a beautiful phrase. Because usually when we think about eternal life, and I, I think it's correct, we think of something that is yet to come, right? Something that is coming at the second uh, coming of Jesus, a time in which, in which we're going to enjoy this beautiful communion with God, which, by the way, the word life in the original, in, for John, it means that, communion with God, union with God, a partnership with God, intimacy with God. That's what the word life means. And what the picture here is that it tells us that there will be a time in which Jesus will come back and he will restore everything that is broken and we're going to enjoy this presence with God, our creator, well, uh, this uninterrupted presence this sinless presence, this joyful presence, this uh, no guilt presence with God for eternity. Now you might say, well, that's good, but that's, that's in the future. What good is that now? It's, that's a valid question. You know, what good is for me if I know if that's coming if... If this is what I'm going through right now, well, there's two things that you got to keep in mind. Number one is that a picture of what is yet to come can actually control you today. Um, forget the name of this author. It's, it's, it's this author, uh, author, it's a psychologist talking about the behavior that people uh, had when they were in concentration camps during the Nazi era. And in his study, he says that the people that actually made it all the way to the end it was the people that had the certainty that the war would end. Really interesting. He says that the people that never gave up was the people that actually thought and embraced and tasted what was yet to come. I think that is the same thing for us. When you think of eternal life, when you think of those terms, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more struggle, perfect unity, perfect communion with the Lord. When you think about that, when you embrace that, that affects the way you live your life today. What makes this text even more beautiful is that John is not just talking about the things that are coming later on. 
He's talking about eternal life as here now. Look where it says that you may know that you have eternal life. In theology, is this concept about here and not yet. That's the way they describe it. Implying that when Jesus, when Jesus Christ came, he came to inaugurate, to start something that we didn't have before. But that will be fully fulfilled or fully accomplished later on. When Jesus Christ came, and if you believe, him, you believe in him today, you could actually taste what heaven looks like. Actually, listen, I was worshiping here, and I'm looking at these guys worshiping here, and I'm seeing heaven right there. Every time you come to church, every time you have a meal, every time you enjoy life, those are foretastes of the things that are to come. Jesus Christ came not just to forgive your sins, and not just for you to be accepted, but to give you life, a life that is completely different to everything else. And the, and the way I see it, this has implications because if that is true, and I believe it is, then everything you experience here, everything good that you experience here, everything that is beautiful here that you experience here is simply a foretaste of what is to come. That's how you go through life. So I was thinking about, you know, I, I had the blessings to be with my wife when, when she was giving birth. If you have, not, you have no idea how much I suffered during that time. But, but I remember seeing my babies, you know, coming out and finding that time so beautiful. It's amazing, right? But the Bible tells me that that, as beautiful as it is, is just a foretaste of what is to come. It's just foretaste. You know what the problem is? We settle for so little. Our problem is that we settle for nothing. C.S. Lewis famous, famously saying, says something like, we, we, we are so content with just anything. But when you have this picture that Jesus Christ came to give us the beginning of something that is going to be so beautiful later on. Leads you to live your life completely different. And if that is true, and it is, the second implication is this. That we know, if you're a Christian, you know that actually nothing here fully satisfies. Nothing here fully satisfies. Because you were created for a different world. You were created for something better and bigger than just this. As good as this is, this is just the beginning. Nothing fully satisfies here. No relationship satisfies here. No work fully satisfies here. No experience fully satisfies here. No worship fully satisfies here. Nothing fully satisfies here. This is just the beginning. We are in our journey to something better. You're not bound to this, you know. You're not living your life just for this. You have something much better, much, much more beautiful, more perfect than just this. So let, let me do a quick application here for you in terms of relationships. See, when you think that uh, you having the perfect person in your life is what is going to make you really happy, you know what you do? You, you, you exasperate people. To give you what they can't give you. I just want someone that understands me. You have to understand me. Well, the, you know, especially if you're in a relationship between a man and a woman, you know that that's not true. That's not going to happen. Like, do you really understand one another? No, that's not how it is. It's all right. This is church. You know, you can be honest. Nothing fully satisfies here. Only what is to come. First conviction, we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's a for sure thing. Even when it comes to suffering, it's, it's just for a, for a period of time. 
It's just for a short period of time. Think of eternity, and this is just for a short period of time. Second conviction. It has to do with prayer. Notice in verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15. And we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, the word confidence is a very important word because it could also be translated as boldness. You know, and he's calling Christians to come before the presence of God with prayer request in boldness. Not shy, oh God, please do me a favor. Can you please do me a favor? Boldness. He's coming before the presence of God, fully trusting that he listens and he answers. So if you want a picture of that, picture what your kids, if you have kids, picture what your kids did when they were little. Like my daughters get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Papi, can I have some water? Get it yourself, girl. But what I do love is that they know that they could come to me. They don't need permission. They don't go, oh, Mr. Rodriguez, can I have a time with you? They just come into my house. They come into my room. They come into my face. That's what prayer is for. That's what prayer looks like for a Christian. We, we come to him and we request to him and we request from him anything, anything in your heart. There's only one condition. That you do it according to his will. And that's the problem. See, this is a smaller setting, okay? So I'm going to need participation, all right? How many of you guys have ever asked something of the Lord that he doesn't give you, and in your heart you grow resentment? Okay, so five, six, seven, ten, the rest of you guys are holy. <laughs> or liars, one of the two. But this is the idea. That when, it comes to, when we come to God, we have this perspective that, um, that if I ask of anything, he will give me whatever I want. But if the condition is that if he gives me according to his will... The prerequisite is that I know his will. So, for example, if you're praying for, a, for a, a sick person, we know that the Bible makes it extremely clear that we pray for people that are sick. So, for example, I have an issue where people say, hey, can you please heal this person if it's your will? Well, I don't know if it's his will or not, but I know that the Bible says that we ought to pray about that. Right? I'm not sure that I should pray so much about... Um, you know, God, please, you know, I just want to have money. Not sure that's a biblical principle. Especially when I think about Jesus not even having a house. Oh, Lord, please keep me from problems. Well, you can pray about that, but that's not necessarily the problem. Because everyone has problems in the Bible. So knowing his will... It's very important when it comes to prayer. And sometimes his answer is no answer. And we struggle with that. But this is the confidence that we know that he hears. And that he will answer somehow at some point. All I'm doing is resting in him. That's all I'm doing. And I got full confidence that the Lord that, that cares for me and loves me and, and is for me listens to my prayers. You know, I don't know if this, this is true for your life, but there's so many prayers I've asked, I brought before the Lord that the Lord has not answered in my time. But in his time, Listen, I know, I, I know about this woman that prayed for her dad 21 years. And during those 21 years, she complained and cried and went to the Lord and said, how come you're not doing this for me, Lord? But five minutes before this man passed away, he surrendered his life to the Lord. You see, as Christians, we have this certainty 
Not only that we have permission to come to the Lord in prayer, but we have the certainty that he listens and he answers. And when he does not answer, that's your answer. My job is to come to him and rest in his goodness. You guys still with me? Conviction number three. And this has to do with my relationship with him, your relationship with him. Notice in verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Let me give you two things that we see in that text. One has to do with your status, and the other one has to do with your nature. As Christians, we have this core conviction that when we came to Jesus Christ, when he saved our soul, we became children of God. And I want you to listen to this because to be called a children of God or a child of God is not just that God forgave you, it's not just that God accepted you, it's that God gave you a different status. And you got to keep that in mind. Because your status is what gives you your identity. Your status is what, what tells you that you are secure. Your status is what tells you that you, you're worthy of something. So, because I'm talking as a, as a father, my daughters are my daughters regardless of what they do. That's a beautiful thing to have. My daughters will never stop being my daughter. If I, if I ever say that they're not my daughters, I'm an evil father. But when it comes to Christianity, we know that because of what Jesus Christ did, his life, death, and resurrection, we have been adopted and our status is completely different. So I really don't care what you did this week. I really don't care what you do today. I don't even care what you're going to do later on after you leave this place. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your status never change. Ever. Even, even in the midst of your most grotesque sin. Because your adoption was once and for all and is eternal. That doesn't change. But this is what we do. This is where we struggle. That somehow we think that our, we think that our flaws change our status somehow. Listen, my, my daughters are beautiful, man. So if you have boys, just keep them away. <laughs> but I know that my daughters will sin. And I know that my daughters have sinned. But that doesn't change that they're my daughters. If this is coming from a man that is a flawed creature, full of sins and struggles, can you picture God as a father being perfect and flawless? So Jack Miller is the founder of World Missions. Um, he passed away already. He tells a story about this girl that went to this Christian counselor, and, and she was struggling with seeing God as a father. She struggled a lot with that. And I actually, I, I could say that that's part of my struggle because I grew up without my dad. So for some reason, you, you know, when you think of God as a father, it's almost like a, it's, if, if you don't have a good male figure in your life, it's almost, it's really hard to put it together, right? Well, this girl is struggling with this, and she goes to the, to the, um, to the counselor and says, uh, listen, I, I really struggle seeing God as a father. Like, I, I don't get that. Right? So she's trying to dig into her heart and stuff like that. And she eventually shares her, uh, her story. And she, and she goes back to a time when she was maybe like four or five years old. And um, she didn't have a really good relationship with her dad. The, that her, her father was kind of distant, uh, I would say. Um, but anyway, one day, maybe at age five, she's, she's saying, well, I got to do something to earn God, my father's love. Right? And she goes into the basket, the dirty basket, and she grabs this white shirt that is from work. Uh, and she says, I'm going to wash it for him. 
right? And she washes it. She's a five-year-old girl, all right? She washes it for him. And this is back in the days. So she, after she washes it, she needs, she needs to go out and, you know, put it on, you know, hang it on line, you know, like, like back in the days. Um, uh, but she's so little that she cannot, she's so short that she cannot reach the line. So she finds like, a, like an all-wheel barrel, and she brings it over uh, so she can stand on it. Uh, but before she gets on top of it, she puts the shirt right on, right on it. Um, well, you know, what five-year-old girl pays attention to that, right? Um, so she hangs it and walks away. When dad gets home, she's super excited. She goes out to him, Daddy, Daddy, I have this for you. I got a gift for you. She shows the shirt, and, and, and the father goes crazy. Like, what is this? Don't you know that this is my work shirt? How dare you? And that experience changed her heart. So the counselor, being a biblical counselor, she says, well, I understand your pain, and I, I understand what you're going through, but let me, let me ask you this. If, if, if that wouldn't be... If that wouldn't mean Jesus, what do you think Jesus would have done? And she goes, well, I think that Jesus would forgive me. I think that he would look at the chair and says, you know, that's okay, honey, I forgive you. And she would let it go, and he would let it go. And the counselor looks at her and says, you don't get it. You don't get it yet. She's like, what do you mean? See, if, if your dad would have mean Jesus, he would have grabbed that stain shirt and would put it on. And he would have gone to work. And he would have bragged about you. And he would have bragged about this beautiful gift that you did to him. And he, every time he would look at those stains, he would not be reminded how, how, messed, how messed up you are, but how beautiful you are. And that changed her heart. Because when you are a child of God, your status changes. And regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you do, and regardless of what you will do, that does not change. You're still precious to Him. And that's a conviction that we have. And it's a conviction that no one can take away. You cannot take it away when you condemn yourself. You cannot. You don't have permission to do that. Because you have been adopted in Jesus Christ and nothing changes that. That's a conviction. So when you struggle and when you go through pain and when you suffer, it might be because of your sin. And maybe not. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because to God, you're still precious. When no one loves you, that doesn't matter. Because to Him, you're precious. When no one embraces you, it doesn't matter. Because to Him, you're precious. You're a child of God. That's a conviction. That's why we don't need to beg anybody for love. That's why we don't need to beg anybody for acceptance. We know what we are in Jesus to God our Father. Now the beauty is that he doesn't stop there. Because not only he gives us a new status, but he gives us a new nature. And the reason why I say that is because he starts talking about how the devil, he protects us from the devil. And then he says that the devil has influence in this creation. Actually, he says, um, well, let me read it over here. It says, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, at the beginning, it says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, if you, if you have been here uh, with Pastor Will through this series, he talked about this at the beginning of the letter because this is the second time that this appears. And this is the idea. The idea is not that you're no longer going to sin, because that's, that's not what the Bible says, right? The idea is that you're not, it's not that you're not going to struggle with your own personal sins, because you're going to struggle. The idea is not that you're not going to commit sins. But I think that there's a difference. Because if you're a child of God, you have been adopted by Him, you have a new nature. 
you actually have something inside of you called the Holy Spirit that gives you the power to say no to sin. And it gives you the power to repent even if you have sinned. And you have the power to actually come back to God even after you have sinned. It, it is the beauty of the Holy Spirit living in, in, inside the Christians that it gives you a new nature. So now, as Christians, if you're really a believer, you now have this weird relationship with your sin in which you both love it and hate it. You have no idea. Every time I say that, I get expressions like the one that I just saw right now. When I say, you love your sin. No. Yes, you do. That's why you do it. But with a new nature, you also hate it. And you hate it not just because of the consequences of that. But you hate it because of what it represents. Listen. A person that commits adultery not only hates adultery because of what he does to the family, but because of what he does into his relationship with God. That's a conviction we have. That we do have a new nature. That we could say no. And that even when we don't say no and we fall, we could always come back to him and keep fighting. You know, God speaks to me through a lot of ways, especially in the Bible, but he speaks to me through a lot of movies. Um, and I'm being serious. Not that it's the word of God, but I always see examples of that in a lot of movies. Um, so this one comes from the theology of Spider-Man. In one of, one, one of the movies of Spider-Man, you got this, I don't even remember the name of the guy, but he's got all these tentacles and a bunch of different arms. What was his name? There you go. Shame on you, girl. <laughs> but right before he dies, he says this. I'm not dying as a monster. And he kills himself to save somebody else. So whenever I think about sin and the things that I struggle because I got this new nature, that phrase always comes back to mind. I'm not going to die as a monster. I'm not going to die as a monster. Even if I surrender to this one, I'm not going to die as a monster. I'm not going to surrender to it because I'm not going to die as a monster. And that's a conviction. You have the conviction of eternal life. You have the conviction that you have access to your father whenever you want, however you want. You have the conviction that you've been adopted to him, adopted by him. You are a child of God and you have the conviction that you have a new nature. You could actually say no. Now, it looks really interesting because at the end of that text, very last sentence says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Which is so random. Right? It seems like if he finished the letter, he says, Oh, the Holy Spirit forgot something. <laughs> Write it down. Yeah, I don't, well, that's not the case in the Bible. I think that there's a reason why he puts this right at the end before he after he talks about these convictions. It's because if there's something that shakes your convictions, are your idols. And I know I will talks about this all the time, so I'm not going to get into that, but just let me give you a taste there. Your conviction says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you have eternal life. That the best is yet to come. Your idol says, this is all I have. I have to enjoy it right now. I can't, for the, miss of, the fear of missing out right now. That's an idol. You know, your conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit says that you have access to God in prayer. And that you could trust him and you could trust that he's good and he will answer whenever he wants, however he wants. But your idol says that you have to make it happen. That you don't have to wait. That if he doesn't move fast enough, you have to do it. That's your idol. You know, your conviction says that your status comes from knowing that you're a child of God. That your significance and your identity and everything that gives you worth comes from that. But your idol says that you have to create your own identity. You have to create your own worth. You have to prove to the world that you're worthy. 
That's your idol. Your convictions by the power of the Holy Spirit says that you have a new nature. That even after you sin, you could always get up because the Spirit allows it and you could repent and keep on going. But your idol says, I don't have to surrender. I just got to pretend that nothing happened. I could do it by myself. That's your idol. So while the Holy Spirit is trying to implant all these convictions inside of you, the devil is trying to create all these idols that will go against it. So not only you come back, and I'll show you in a second, time after time who you are, what you have in Jesus Christ, but time after time you learn how to check your heart. Because idols never disappear. That's what sucks. They always come back. All right. So how do we live with this tension? How do we, how do we keep going? How, do we, how is it that we do it so we don't die as monsters? Well, the, the key for this comes in verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Can you say understanding? understanding? Thank you. This is the beginning of it. Look at here. It tells you that Christianity is not about emotions. I have no issues with emotions, as you could tell. I'm Latino. I enjoy emotions. Right? It's supposed to do it. That's by nature. But it tells you that Christianity is not just about emotions or feeling good or finding these moments that make you feel alive. Christianity starts here. Jonathan Edwards used the word affections all the time. It's this understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us. It's this understanding and believing that what he did for us was enough. It is this understanding in such a way that affects your emotions that makes Jesus uh, completely beautiful and amazing, more than, more than just useful. It all starts here. So when the Bible talks about meditation, that's what it means. When you go back time after time and after time to Jesus, the founder of your faith, and when you think over and over again, the word meditation, it's almost like chewing over and over again. That's what it means. It's when you, have you guys ever seen a cow? Mm, 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 mm. That's meditation. And that's what meditation, that meditation goes with understanding. That's exactly what it is. So I know that whenever we fall away from our certainties and we start believing our idolatry, it's because we don't understand well enough. The second word that we find there. Right after understanding is that so that we may know him. And the word know there is the same word that is used in Genesis to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve. Which means intimacy. The only way we could navigate this life, continue to believe our convictions and fight against our idolatry, is when we walk around knowing him. Understanding, knowing him. And then it says, who is true. And the word true is real. See, the more we think about it, the more affections are affected. The more affections are affected, the more we know him in intimacy. And the more we know him in intimacy, the more real he becomes. So this is, and with this I finish, I promise. Your idol tells you something, and your convictions by the power of the Holy Spirit tells you something else. You cannot surrender this by willpower. I hope you get that. If you've been in this church for a while, you know Will preaches about this all the time. Willpower won't do it. Your affections is what changes. Understand, meditate, know until he becomes so real that this has to decrease. So I'm going to give you an example 
And this is the last one. Listen, Will does this all the time, so you got to give me grace. <laughs> this is the last minute. It's like 20 more minutes knowing Will. This is how it helps me. And this is the dynamic that I play all the time. Whenever I'm going through something, I have this exercise. Actually, in my devotional time and everything, I have to go back to Jesus. And I think about his life, and I think about his death, and I be, think about his resurrection. Because it is in the resurrection that we actually get all this stuff that we talked about today. Um, uh, and I grabbed this example from Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards is thinking about Jesus at Gethsemane. This is how you understand. This is how you know. This is how you find him real. So he's thinking about John, um, Jesus at Gethsemane. And then he's thinking and meditating upon that phrase when he says, uh, when, when Jesus comes to the Father and says, if it's your will, please take this cup away from me. Remember that? This is his argument. He says, well, if Jesus would have said that when he was at the cross, it would have made sense. He's already nailed to the cross. He's already suffering. He's already about to die. Why did he make that prayer before? Well, because there's a reasoning for it. See, when Jesus prayed that, not only he's showing us his humanity, and he's showing us what he's, he's willing to do for us, but he's showing us that when he went to the cross, he did it because he, want, he wanted to, not because he had to. He showed us the reason when he prayed this, he has the option to not get to the cross. But he gets there. Now when I think of a Savior that chose to love me, that chose to die for an enemy, that chose to give me eternal life while he was about to lose his life, that chose to have, uh, give me access to the Father when he lost access to the Father, that chose to, to make me his son when I was his enemy, when he chose to actually give me a new, a new nature instead of wrath. When I think of that, when I meditate on that, that's when my heart is transformed. And when my heart is transformed, that's when I find it more real than anything else. So my sin is still here. And my idolatry is still here. But when Jesus becomes real, everything else diminishes. And we do that every day for the rest of our lives so we don't die as monsters. Amen? Let's pray.